0: Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, would you turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 1? We have an opportunity to begin a new series. I'm excited about this series that's called Encounters with Jesus. Encounters with Jesus. And we see we're going to be working through the book of John and some other places as well where the Lord Jesus Christ made connections with people and saw changes in their lives dramatically. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the life of um, five apostles or five disciples, um, but one in particular, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is what we're going to call a skeptic. Uh, skeptics are interesting um, people. Um, they, they have their doubts. They have their um, Questions. Uh, they they look at scripture. They look at God, and they they have questions about it. And maybe that's somebody sitting here today, um, wondering if if their words of God's words can be real and, and true in their lives. Sean McDowell um, had an opportunity to sit down with a bunch of skeptics, and um, he went to this group of people, a group, where they truly do not believe in God. One of their core values is they reject the God of the Bible. And so that's what this group does, and they meet. And Sean McDowell decides to go there um, for a meeting with these people, and most of his friends were saying, why would you even go to that kind of group? They, they reject God. Why would you waste your time? And, and McDowell had written a book about learning to engage the skeptic. And he said, well, if I cannot show what I'm preaching in practice, then it, the book is not worthwhile. So he, he called up this local group of atheists and skeptics. And they said, I would like to come and meet with you. And he wasn't sure how the leader was going to accept it, and the leader was actually pretty excited that somebody from the Christian faith would be willing to come in and sit down and talk with them. And it was funny that as he went to the meeting, um, some of his friends, he asked his friends to give me a number of questions that you would ask these skeptics, you would ask these atheists, and try to figure out um, how to get them. And a number of those questions were apologetic questions that were meant to kind of trip them up. Now, apologetics is huge, and, and Pastor Doug and Ed or me are doing their Sunday school class, and that's really important. And if you're not here uh, in Sunday school, I would encourage you to be in that class to learn about your faith and how to share your faith. But, but some of his friends were saying that, you know what, these apologetics, you ask these questions that will trip them up and make them fall flat on their face. And he said, all I want to do is go there and listen to them. I want to engage them. I want to talk with them. He used this passage in first Peter chapter three, verse fifteen, and it says this but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and and respect. And those two key components, you, you have the truth, but you need to be gentle and respectful in the ways that you do it. So as he sat down with these people, he, he said, I want to engage them. And he prayed that God would give him a tender heart and a quick mind And and what ended up happening was he had a really good conversation with them. And they were asking him things about his belief. He was asking them things about their belief. And they were talking with one another, communicating with one another. It was interesting. I found it interesting that he asked them at the end several questions about Christians. He said, what bad impressions do Christians leave? One of them said, hypocrisy. Christians often focus on a particular sin, such as homosexuality, while they're committing other egregious sins in their lives, which is interesting. That they they were saying that we have a tendency to pigeonhole certain types of sin, but other sins in our lives we're not dealing with, which is probably true. He said, um, one of them also said that Christians don't take their religion seriously. Why don't they read the Bible and study the Bible and follow the Bible in the way that they live? Ooh, that's harsh. Christians often criticize me for having, not having good reasons for what they I believe, but they don't have good reasons for what they believe either. Wow. You know, we, we're really quick to say that your belief is wrong, but do we have a reason for the hope of what we live? They also asked, he says, what blind spots do Christians have? And he said, we notice faults in others, but not in ourselves. Hmm. And what can Christians do to improve their interaction with atheists, skeptics? Listen. Stop looking at atheists as though they are wearing the scarlet letter. Learn to associate with us. Learn to be okay that if we criticize Christianity... You don't have to get defensive, wow. And over and over again, I found it really interesting as this man sat down with a bunch of people that have values and beliefs that are counter to his, that he was willing to engage them and connect with them. Nathaniel is a skeptic, probably not of this sort. Nathaniel in all likelihood was a believer in in the Old Testament God but he struggled with some pride and he struggled with some level of prejudice and we can do the same. And this morning I want you to consider how the Lord Jesus Christ engages people. I want you to consider how the Lord Jesus Christ connects with people. I want you to know that the Bible that we have, we can have confidence in the truth of the gospel. That didn't get an amen? We can have confidence in the truth of the gospel. We can have confidence that we have a God who is right and true. And we can also have a confidence in knowing that the Holy Spirit is the one who is transforming people's lives. We are there to plant seed. He is the one that will transform us. And I want you to believe this, that even atheists have a desire to dialogue. They have a desire to sit down and talk. Some of them may not, but there are numbers that will. The last thing I want you to consider as we go to this text is that worldview is powerful. What people believe deep down in their hearts is powerful. And what they believe, even if it's wrong, transforms the way they live. So what we need to do is to learn to have conversations with people like the Lord Jesus did. And as he had conversations with people, what he did was he brought about things to help them to consider new things in their lives. And as they considered new things in their lives, they they felt a conviction deep down. And then that led to the transformation and the change that happens. Those four steps are so important. A conversation. Then there is consideration. And then there is conviction brought about by the Holy Spirit. And then that's producing the change. I think that that's the steps that the Lord Jesus Christ did in John chapter 1. And those are the steps that we must follow if we're going to encounter people like the Lord Jesus did. So hear this word, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed that I am not the Christ. This is John the Baptist. And they asked, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He said, I am not. So they said, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And then he goes into the Old Testament. He says this in verse 23. He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29, this is day two. That was day one, day two. The next day he said, he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself do not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending on Him from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and I have seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. So we have, we have John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is a relative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist hears of the Messiah coming. And John the Baptist has been called, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he is called to preach that people must turn from their sins and repent. He is preaching Repentance, And then he is bringing people into the waters of baptism. For a Jewish person, that must have been a repugnant for some of them. Because as a Gentile, like most of us are, we would be baptized in order to become a Jew. So now for a Jew to go into the waters of baptism, in essence, they're saying, well, why would I have to do a, Jew, a Gentile right? But what John is saying is this, you need to be cleansed from your sin. You need to acknowledge your sin and you need to acknowledge that you need a savior. And so he is a forerunner for Jesus Christ. He is not a, the sign. He is a sign pointing to the ultimate person. And John the Baptist is there. Now we get to day three. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked. Can I just use this uh, over and over again, there is something about seeing, looking, watching, seeing. He says, with your eyes, I want you to see this. So hear those words throughout this passage. He looked at Jesus, who walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Perhaps you remind yourself of Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, he is a a, lo- he is a sheep who is quiet before the shearers and that he is now going to suffer this death that God has laid upon him and that's he's forecasting what's going to happen he is prophesying what's going to happen to the Lord Jesus Christ behold the lamb of god and then the two disciples heard him say this verse 37 and they followed Jesus Now, John the Baptist says, I am not the ultimate one. I am looking forward to one who I can't even untie his shoes. This guy that is coming, this Messiah that is coming is greater than me. He ranks before me. So he has disciples that are with him, and his disciples look at Jesus, and they leave John the Baptist, and they follow Jesus. There's no jealousy here on John the Baptist's part. He knows that he is just merely a sign pointing to the Messiah. He is not the Messiah. So these two apostles here, at verse 37, heard him say this, and they followed him. And Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, What are you seeking? It's the very first words that we hear of Jesus in his um, prophetic ministry as a Messiah. What are you seeking? It, it's, I find it a probing word. I find it piercing. I find it a provocative question. What are you seeking? Because really, it's the heart motivation of everything that we do that drives who we are and what we do. So as these people that are following, are you just following me because of some curiosity? Are you following me because of real conviction of heart and life? Are you following me because you want to see some miracles? Or are you following me because you know that there's something missing in your life and you want the truth? Deep down, he is asking, what are you seeking? I guess I can ask you the same question this morning. As you're sitting here in this church this morning, as you're hearing my voice, what brings you here to this church this morning? Maybe it's family tradition. Maybe you got dragged here this morning and you feel that you had no option. Maybe you're coming here because you think it's going to appease God. Maybe you're coming here because you want to get some brownie points with God. Maybe you're coming here because you're feeling depressed or down or discouraged and you want some hope. Maybe you're coming here because you're feeling defeated. Maybe you're coming here because you want to worship the sovereign God and he, just, he is just all of who you are and you just want to be with his people. I don't know what it is that you're seeking. But deep down in our hearts, there is a good question that we have to ask ourselves. What are you seeking? It's the very first words that Jesus asked. He's asking about the priorities. What is driving you here? And, and look at what they, how they responded. I was actually trying to put myself in their shoes. And I was trying to think, if Jesus Christ asked me what am I seeking, what in the world would I say? I mean, it's kind of like a genie in a bottle, right? You know, it's like you rub the, okay, we don't believe that. But you rub the bottle and it's like, oh, I get this wish. It's like, so I'm asking God, I'm asking the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, what are you seeking? What would be your answer? I want peace. I want hope. I want forgiveness. I want joy. I want, I want... Maybe kind of like um, Solomon answered. You remember when Solomon was asked by God, what is it that you want? And Solomon said, wisdom. I think that's what these disciples are asking. Because he said, they said to him, "Um, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher. So they start with this very honorific term, this term of great respect. You are my teacher, John the Baptist was our teacher, but now you're our teacher. And they ask this question, where are you staying? Why would they ask where are you staying? You know, at best, maybe I'll speak for 35, 40 minutes this morning, okay? But they got hours with the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll find out here in a moment that it's, 10 p- it's 4 p.m., 4 p.m., it's getting near time. It's in January. The sun is going down quicker. And they're sitting there saying, we don't have enough time for one quick conversation with you. We want to spend time with you. We want to be with you. We want to learn from you. We want to be taught from you. We have many questions. We have many confusions. Help us to learn from you. We want to converse with you. We want to understand. Is that what you want to do? Remember Mary sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ just learning from him. And the Lord Jesus Christ has said in verse 39, and he said to them, come and you will see. Jesus Christ is is accessible. He's available. He says, I'm here for you. That's really the heart of a discipler, to be there for his disciples or her disciples. And the disciples had to show themselves to be vulnerable and teachable and available and honest. And that's what Andrew and this other disciple did. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for about the 10th hour, 4 p.m. The Jewish um, time starts at 6 a.m. in the morning, so the 10th hour would be about 4 p.m. Verse 40. One of the two who had heard John speak, this is John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, so now we've got his name. Simon Peter's brother, verse 41 He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, the Christ. The Messiah is the Hebrew word for the anointed one. The Christ is the Greek word for the anointed one. And he brought him to Jesus. Isn't that really the heart of real discipleship and connection? That, that you, you found Christ and you have conversed with Christ and now you've gotten to a place where you are considering Christ and you had this personal conviction for Christ. And now what you want to do is to share that conviction with other people. I've got this news and I just want to share this with other people. I can't hold this in on my, with myself. So where does he go? He goes to his family. He goes to his brother, Peter, Simon Peter. And then look at this, what it says. We found the Messiah, which means the Christ. In verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus, what? Looked at him again. And he said, you were Simon, the son of John. How in the world does Jesus know this? Now, unless Jesus Christ had had a connection with Simon before, which we have no proof of, We believe that it is all likelihood that Jesus Christ, just because of his omniscience, knows Peter. That Peter, I know you, Simon. I know you. I know the family that you're from. I know you're a fisherman. I know what you were doing just before you came here. I know you. But greater than that, I know what you will become in me. Because watch what he does. He says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called, what, Cephas, which means Peter, a rock or a stone. And you remember when Peter had this great confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and you are Peter, rock, and on this rock, the truth that you just said, I'm going to build my church. So Jesus knows Peter. When he sees Peter, he knows him. It's so encouraging to me because when Jesus looks at me, he knows me. He knows all of my weaknesses. He knows all of my fears. He knows all of my sins. He knows all of my failures. He knows me, but he doesn't focus on that. He is focusing on what I will become in him. Let that gospel message ring clear in your heart and life. Verse 43. Now this is day four. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Why? Why did he go to Galilee? See, everything that Jesus does is for a purpose. we were going to find in one of the encounters that Jesus went through Samaria to get to a woman at a well. Jesus Christ sovereignly had a plan to meet with this next man. So he found Peter. Just like he Found you. He found Peter and said to him, follow me. It's interesting, in the other conversations, the disciples initiated it. But right here, the Lord Jesus Christ gives a direct command, follow me. And what does Philip do? Philip, now he was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So Andrew and Peter and, and John and um, Philip all, all growing up in this same town. And so when he heard Jesus say this, and he's getting some time with Jesus. Oh, I should tell you, Bethsaida means uh, the fisherman's home. It's a very small town. So in all likelihood, these men knew each other. In all likelihood, they may have been worshipped in the same synagogue together. And so he has heard of this man. And in verse 45, Philip then goes and says, wait a minute, I'm going to find Nathanael. And so Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one whom Moses spoke about in the law and also in the prophets, wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The enthusiasm. The joy, the hope, the confidence, that these are men who knew the Old Testament, and when they looked at Christ and they investigated Christ and they had conversations with Christ, and they were convicted deep down that this is the Christ, they needed to tell somebody else. they told somebody else. Now Nathaniel's an interesting man. Nathaniel clearly knows the Old Testament. He is not like the atheists that I had talked about before or the skeptics who may not know the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. He was actually a believer in the Old Testament God, but he had his pride. He had his prejudices. You know, prejudice is this attitude that tends to prejudge a whole group without complete evidence. You make this big, undifferentiated group you see all of them the same, and that's what he does here with the people of Nazareth. It's interesting, Galilee and Bethsaida, or uh, are, these are small places, and they're having these community fights with one another. We kind of do it here, don't we? We look at a certain community that is next to us, and it's like, oh, you're from there, you know? It's like, and we kind of put it down. But he was an Old Testament scholar in this sense, or he knew the Old Testament in this sense. He says, well but Christ isn't coming from Nazareth. And he says, Nathanael says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. It's the second time in this passage that come and see is used. If you go back to verse 38, Jesus said, come and you will see. And then in verse 46, Philip says, come and see. I love that. Philip doesn't take a time to argue with the skeptic, kind of like I had said before, some of Sean McDowell's friends said, um, uh, attack them, use questions to trip them up. Sean says, I just want to listen and connect with them. What Philip is doing is almost the exact same thing. Philip says, you know what, I don't have all the answers, but why don't we come and see? See, Nathanael has these skeptical questions. He is just not sure. But Philip didn't take time to argue or debate with him. He simply invited Nathanael to see Christ. And then in verse 48, it says this, or 47, Jesus saw, once again, see, what is he seeing in Nathanael? Is he seeing a prideful man? Is he seeing a a prejudiced man? No, what is he seeing? He says this, Behold, see, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Can you imagine if the Son of God made that pronouncement about you? He's not saying Nathaniel is sinless. He's not. What he is saying is that you are a true believer. You're a true believer in the Old Testament portion. I am now going to show you who you really are and where you will actually become. And what Nathaniel says, wait a minute, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Let that wrap around your mind that the omniscient, all present, all knowing God knows you. That before he could actually see Philip with physical eyes, he had seen Philip not only externally where he was under a tree, but he could also see into his heart. That same God knows you. That same God wants to rescue you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Philip says, how do you know me? And Jesus said, before you, Philip called you, you were under the tree. I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, son of God, you are the king of Israel. You could see that his prejudice was there, but it wasn't deep. That when he got the evidence, his eyes changed. Prejudice is really about Ignorance. And we are ignorant of other people and we're ignorant of situations, but it can be entrenched. It can be rigid, but it wasn't that way with Nathanael. Nathanael was looking for the Savior, and he now sees the Savior. And then Jesus ends by saying this Because I said you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. Jesus says, he asked this rhetorical question and it has this promise to it. He says, you believe because I I told you I saw you under a tree. But I'm going to tell you great promise. You're going to be amazed at what you see in me. I ask you the question, how amazed are you at the Lord Jesus Christ? When was the last time you found yourself just utterly overwhelmed and astonished Bewildered by Christ, staggered by him, marveling at him, seeing him, savoring him, opening your eyes to see that this is the second person of the Trinity who has come to be your Savior, your Lord. And he wants to transform you and bring you to his Father. That is who we need to fix our vision on. Sad to say most of us fix our vision on earthly things and we miss it. And then Jesus ends with this in verse fifty one. He said to him, Truly, truly, in essence he is saying amen and amen. So when do we tend to say amen? Amen. We tend to say amen after a message. Let's say you hear a powerful message and you go, Amen. Or at the end of a prayer, what do you say? Amen. You say it afterwards, and amen literally means so be it. Jesus is the only one in Scripture that starts amen, amen before. Because what he's saying is this. What I'm going to tell you is of such veracity, I'm going to tell you that it is veracity. I'm going to tell you right now by telling you amen, amen. Truly, truly. He will use this phrase over 20 times in the book of John. Truly, truly. Truly, And what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see, eyes again, heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Maybe you remind yourself of that um, kid song we used to sing, I am climbing Jacob's ladder, bad theology. It really is. It wasn't Jacob climbing Jacob's ladder. It was the angels descending and ascending this ladder. And what are they doing? They're ascending and descending upon who? The Son of Man. The Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to consider this this morning. Just a couple of things I want you to consider this morning. Come and see, in my mind, means about conversations. Throughout each one of these stories, you see people that were engaging the person. John the Baptist engaged the group of people, and then he engaged his disciples. Andrew, and I didn't tell you, the other apostle in all likelihood who is not named is probably the apostle John. So Andrew and John are there as disciples of the Lord of uh, John the Baptist, He engaged them in conversation. And then what happened is that he engaged their mind in consideration. He went from conversations to consideration. Their minds were engaged. Not only was the person engaged, but their minds were engaged. And then as he engaged their minds through consideration, then there was conviction. There was an engagement of the heart. Come and see you need to have conversation and that leads to a change of the person and consideration which leads to engagement of the mind and conviction would lead to engagement of the heart and that leads to the commitment, the change, the exchange of the will, the effect on the life. And so, over and over again, conversation, consideration, conviction, and commitment. Conversation, consideration, conviction, and commitment. Over and over again, come and see is about connecting with people. And then giving them and connecting with their minds so that they consider. And as their minds get engaged, their hearts get engaged. And as their hearts get engaged and they're convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit, then that is what causes the transformation and the commitment over and over again. That's the process. The Lord Jesus Christ showed us this process. This is the process that we need to follow in our lives. Can I give you two last principles before we close? Because I see the four principles there over and over again. Conversation, engaging the person. Consideration, engaging the mind. Conviction, engaging the heart. And commitment, engaging the will. Effective life. But there are two more I want you to see. Confounded. Come and see means to be confounded with Christ. Overwhelmed with Christ. 25 years ago, um, we went to Grand Canyon. And I went to the Grand Canyon, and I tried to take pictures of the Grand Canyon, but you really cannot get a sense of the majesty of this canyon um, through pictures. And I, I can remember sitting there at the edge of the Grand Canyon and there was this terror because there were no, at least at the time, I don't know if they have them now, but there were no rails. <laughs> and you get over, you look over, it's like, whoa, that's a long way down. And it's like the, the terror, the dread that is there. But there was something that was drawing me to this edge to, to see over. And the the majesty of the Grand Canyon is but a little drop in the hand of the sovereign God that we worship this morning. And Jesus says, you think that's amazing? You're gonna see amazing things. So there's conversation, there's consideration, there's conviction, there's commitment, but there's a confounding aspect of Jesus. If you're gonna be transformed, you need to be confounded. My last principle I want you to consider is this. All of this was done in community. You cannot encounter other people without being in community. The vast majority of us were not saved through a preacher sitting in a pulpit. We were saved one on one, life on life together. I get the opportunity to do that day after day with counselees that sit in my office. Pastor Tim loves taking people to diners and sitting down and just engaging or working with them in a project. Here, come work with a project with me. And he's starting to engage them. Pastor Doug engages people in a seminary and teaches them. We have people here that are teaching people in Sunday school classes. My Psalms class tonight, the men's group tomorrow night and Tuesday night, the women's groups that are here, the Sunday school that was just before. You need to be in a place where you can learn and have conversations with one another. You need to be in a place where you will be considering the claims of Christ. You need to be in a place where you will hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You need to be in a place where you can hear the commitment and see the change happening in your life. You need to be in a place where God is confounding you with the Christ. And you need to be in community with one another. You need to do life together. You can't do this on your own. You cannot turn on a TV and pop in a video and be transformed. It does not work. You do this together. Years ago, there was this um, men's group. Uh, I can't speak to all of the theology behind the group, but I can remember going to big stadiums, and we would sing together with one another, and there was a song, and it goes, No Higher Calling. It says, Down at your feet, O Lord, is the most high place. In your presence, Lord, I seek your face. I seek your face. There is no higher calling, no greater honor than to bow and kneel before your throne. I'm amazed at your glory, embraced by your mercy. O Lord, I live to worship you. Hearing 30,000 men sing that out, oh, it was amazing we have an opportunity to do that. Maybe not with 30,000 people, Will we have an opportunity to sing and praise God today and be confounded by him. Would you pray with me? So Lord, the encounters that we have with you are because you ultimately encountered us. Father, the reason why John the Baptist had to tell us that we are sinners is because we are. That, Father, outside of the work of your Son, we have no opportunity. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Father, perhaps there are people that are sitting here this morning who have sat in this church, and Jesus would be asking them this morning the same question he asked Andrew and John. What are you seeking? Lord, I pray that there are people here, even if you're a skeptic, I pray that they would be recognizing that they need to seek forgiveness. There's going to be a day that every single one of us are going to stand before you and have to give an account. And Father, we can't do that in our own abilities. As as amazing as Nathaniel was, he is still a sinner who is in desperate need of a Savior. And he saw that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I pray today that for the many of us that are here that have trusted in your Son, have had really good conversations and considered the claims of the gospel, and we have a deep conviction in our hearts, Father. I pray that you would help us to continue to commit in our lives to live out the gospel, to demonstrate in the way we speak, to demonstrate in the way we live. Father, help us to be confounded again with the claims of your gospel, but help us to be confounded by your Son. And help us to do that in community. And help us to bring glory and honor to your name. In your son's matchless, holy, powerful, majestic name. Amen and amen.